Thank you very much. Tony's going to be in the foyer afterwards at the ICM booth. If you'd like to stop by and greet him, thank him for the great work that he and ICM do. I said at the beginning of the service, a lot's happening in the life of our church. This May, uh, May is with us in, in just a couple days. These are the events that are unfolding this Saturday. We've got a 5K to raise 5K. It's our mission trip fundraiser. Next Sunday, Graduate Recognition and Bible School Teacher Appreciation Sunday. Bob Montz from Lincoln Christian University will be with us. He's going to preach in the morning. He's also going to share at the Graduate Brunch. He's a good friend, uh, excellent communicator. You will not want to miss. Two weeks from today, the choir is doing their end-of-the-year uh, cantata that they do every year. And three weeks from today, Melanie Cheatham and the Class Act Kids will be, will be presenting the musical That's So Daniel. And four weeks from today, Memorial Day weekend, we just do one service at 9.30. There's no Bible school that day. And that is also our Remembrance Sunday. Kent will be continuing our annual tradition where he reads the names of loved ones we've lost in the last year. I want to also let you know we are sending a, a mailer, a flyer, that's going to go to every mailing address in 61727. That's the Clinton zip code. We're hoping to have many, many, many visitors this month, and you play a huge part in that. If you see a new face, if you say a, see a face you haven't seen for a while, go out of your way to be encouraging and friendly. Don't go up to them and say something like, well, where in the world have you been? Or, oh my goodness, you're at church. Don't, don't say stuff like that. Just encourage them, love them. Thank them for worshiping at First Christian Church. April, this whole month, has kind of been Easter month. We've focused on the resurrection. From Palm Sunday four weeks ago to, to actual Easter Sunday to our message two weeks ago on the legacy of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea to last week's message when Bob Russell was with us from Louisville, Kentucky, and he talked about heaven. How do I get there? I want to review real quickly what we studied two weeks ago, the legacy of Nicodemus and Josephus, because this is kind of part two of a two-part sermon. Really, if, if I had unlimited time, you would have gotten this entire message two weeks ago. But we've split it up into two messages. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were secret disciples. They were afraid to go all out for the Lord. Until finally they watched him die on the cross, the death of crucifixion, and, and they realized we can be quiet no more. We can keep silent no more. And so they went to Pilate and they asked to have permission to, to bury Jesus. The disciples had fled at this point. And the reason that they did this is because the light bulb went off in their mind. The light bulb went off in their heart. All of their lives up to that point in time, they'd been trying to earn their salvation. They've been trying to do enough good things that, that when, when they finally die, they get to go to heaven. And they realize because of Jesus, that's not what it's all about at all. Eternal life is not a reward for good people doing good things. They realized eternal life is God's gift to forgiven people. Romans 6.23, quoting from the message, says, God's gift is real life. It's eternal life delivered by Jesus our Master. And when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea saw Jesus dying on the cross for them, man, it clicked. The light bulb went on. They understood this is what it's all about about. Well, I start this morning by asking you the question, where were the disciples when this was taking place? Where were those who were closest to Jesus when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were burying the body of Jesus in the tomb? What were the disciples doing? Well, let's look at this. Judas, one of the disciples, was so disgraced that he took his own life. He couldn't bear to live another day. 
Mary Magdalene, who many people believe was as close to Jesus as anybody, she was living in denial. Even when Jesus rose again and an angel of the Lord appears in front of her, you remember what she said? She said, somebody stole his body. He's not here. And she sees Jesus and everything changes. Thomas, what was Thomas's reaction to, to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. His friends came up to him, Thomas the disciple, and said, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. We saw Jesus. And what did he say? You remember? What did he say? Unless I can touch him, unless I can put my finger in the hole, I won't believe it. He was in doubt. And the rest of the disciples, especially Peter, they were running for their lives. They were hiding behind locked doors. They were afraid that if they can kill Jesus... We might be next. And then, my friends, it happens. John chapter 21, one of the greatest chapters in the entire New Testament. Peter, John, James, Andrew, they have went back to their former way of life. What were they before they became disciples? Do you remember? They were fishermen. And they're back to fishing for a career. And they've been out all night long, and they didn't catch anything. Their nets were empty. And Jesus appears on the shore. He's like, hey, guys, how's it going? Put your nets back in the water. They're like, we've been fishing all night long. Jesus says, trust me, put your nets in the water. And they have a miraculous catch of fish. They caught so many fish, their nets were bursting at the seams. And the next thing you know, they're eating breakfast with Jesus, and everything seems great, and we're kind of back to, to the utopian life again. And then Jesus does it. He reinstates the disciples, especially Peter. He asks Peter the same question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it's at that point that Peter and John and the other disciples, they get it. Their light bulb is illuminated and they realize it's go time. They realize there's no turning back. Consider the days and the weeks following the resurrection of Jesus. And if you have your Bible, turn to Acts. If you don't have a Bible, we've got pew Bibles uh, in the pew in front of you. Turn to the book of Acts. Look at what took place following the resurrection of Jesus. Well, in Matthew chapter 28 and in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives his disciples their marching order. In Matthew 28 verse 19, Great Commission, many of you know this, he says, go and make disciples. In Acts 1.8, he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And Jesus' message is simple. I'm getting ready to leave. Literally, I'm going to ascend into heaven. It's going to look really cool. But when I ascend into heaven, it's time for you to get busy. It's time for you to preach. It's time for you to take the gospel message. Well, in Acts chapter 2, we see this thing called the day of Pentecost. It's the birthday of the church. And, and it's really kind of uh, uncomfortable at first. It seems kind of weird in many ways. Because there's this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And all of these people that are gathered there find themselves praising and, and speaking and prophesying in languages they don't know. This isn't babbling. This isn't blah, blah, anything along those lines. This is, I've never studied Spanish, and I'm praising God in Spanish. I've never studied French, and I'm praising the Lord in French. It's a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And everyone that is there is realizing this is something special. Everyone that's gathered together realizes that this isn't your typical tabernacle worship. This isn't typical uh, synagogue worship. 
They realize something miraculous has happened. So Peter makes the most of the opportunity, and in Acts chapter 2, he preaches the very first gospel sermon. And if you don't know a lot about the faith, if you, 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 you love Jesus and you want to know more, but you don't know everything you'd like to, spend some time this afternoon or this week in Acts chapter 2, just reading Peter's first gospel sermon. It's awesome. And the cool thing about Acts chapter 2 is that Peter preaches this awesome sermon, and he's ready to go home. He's probably thinking, you know, what restaurant am I going to eat at today? And verse 37 says, the people were so moved, they were cut to the heart, that they grabbed Peter and they say, we want to be like you. What do we do? And verse 38 says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And oh, by the way, 3,000 people became Christ followers that day. I just got to tell you, on, on a day at First Christian Church, when three people come to the Lord, I, I'm like dancing in the streets all afternoon. I mean, it's awesome. 3,000 people became followers of Christ that day. Well, Acts chapter 3 is really where our story begins. And Acts chapter 3 begins with Peter and John heading to the temple to pray. And that's very, um, very routine for them. Good, God-fearing people of the day, they would go to the temple not once, not twice, but three times a day to offer prayers. Can you imagine doing that? Nine o'clock in the morning, you just stop what you're doing. I'm leaving work, I'm going to pray. Three o'clock in the afternoon, doesn't matter if the cubs are on, they're going off, I'm going to the temple to pray. Sundown, doesn't matter if I'm tired, I'm going to the temple to pray. And that's what's happening. Peter and John, three in the afternoon, on the way to the temple to pray, when they see this guy they've seen many, many times. Now, he doesn't stand up because he's crippled. He's lame. He can't walk. He's been that way his entire life. And he does what crippled people did in the first century world. See, there was no disability. There was no social security to lean on. You just put your hand out and you said, help. I don't have any money. I can't eat. Give me some charity. And Peter and John walk by and he raises his hand out and he says, help. I can't walk. I need to eat. I need charity. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. But today's your lucky day. I got something much better than silver and gold. And he takes him by the hand and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And those of you that grew up in junior church, I won't sing this morning, but you know how the song goes. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people around go crazy. They, they can't believe it. This is a miracle. This guy we've seen for his entire life that's crippled, begging for money, is now running through the sanctuary praising God. That's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. And Peter, once again, uses this opportunity to preach. In Acts chapter 3, he preaches the second gospel sermon. And this time, a couple thousand more people come to faith in Jesus. Well, if we just stopped right there, would you say that was a good day? I would say that's a pretty good day. You go to the temple to pray. You do a miracle on the way. Mr. Uh, Cripple is no longer crippled. He's dancing and, you know, loving life large and, you know, two fists up in the air and all the crowd is going crazy. You'd think that's a pretty good day. Well, the religious leaders of the day couldn't believe it. 
They couldn't believe that this took place. And in Acts chapter 4, we see their response. Acts chapter 4 shows us that the, the leaders of the day were looking at men like, let me get it here, you've got people like Caiaphas and Annas the high priest and John and Alexander and the temple guard and the Sadducees. They come up to Peter and John and they say, how did you do that? More importantly, why did you do that? Verse 2 tells us of Acts 4 that they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Understand that when Jesus was nailed to the cross seven weeks earlier, these men, Annas, Caiaphas, Alexander, Sadducees, captain of the temple guard, the religious leaders of the day, they thought their problems were no more. They thought their problems were in the rearview mirror. Because that Jesus guy that was causing this commotion, he is dead, he's been buried, he's going away. And here they are just seven weeks later, and the crowds are going crazy. And that guy is still preaching about the resurrection. He's still talking about the resurrection. They're not happy. They're not pleased. They put Peter and John in jail. The next morning they get out of jail and they bring Peter and John before them and they say, we want to know how you did this miracle. Can you imagine? Think of somebody really, really spiritual. Think of the most spiritual person you know. Say somebody like Ernie Harvey. Let's say Ernie does this great miracle, okay? And we all witness the miracle, and I don't know what the miracle is, but man, we're just loving life, and we're saying, wow, Ernie, you're awesome. And Chief Reedy and Sheriff Schaffner come and arrest him and take him to jail. Would that happen in 2012? No, that wouldn't happen. But that's exactly what happened here in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John perform a great miracle, and they find themselves in jail. And the next morning, they are brought before the religious leadership, the hierarchy, and they are asked to give an account. When was the last time Peter found himself in such a situation? Do you remember? Think back to after Jesus was arrested, prior to his crucifixion. Disciples are kind of scattering. Peter's just kind of hanging around watching it. And someone came up to him and said, weren't you with Jesus? How did Peter respond? Do you remember? Absolutely. I'm with him all the way. Is that what he said? What did he say? Jesus? Who, who's that? Not once, not twice, three times, Peter said, I don't even know who that is. He was so afraid, he was so scared, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us that Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And now Peter finds himself in another situation, facing the religious leaders of the day, and they're saying, how'd you do that miracle? What's going on with that? And here is Peter's response. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and if we're asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He's cowering no more. He's afraid no more. Now he goes Old Testament on them. Verse 11, he says, This Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. That's Psalm 118. 
And then he says one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And he's done. And verse 13 says that the response, Luke records this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So what do we need to grab this morning in the few minutes that we have left together? There's four things that I want you to see. And number one is this. I want you to see that Peter is no longer running. He's no longer hiding. He's no longer cowering. He is boldly and proudly proclaiming the source of this miracle, Jesus Christ. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. Even though he watched Jesus die on the cross just seven weeks earlier, he's saying, make no doubt about it. I didn't do the miracle. John didn't do the miracle. It's all about Jesus. He's bold. He's proud. And he doesn't care who knows it. He doesn't care who hears it. Last week, we had Bob Russell preach at our church. Many of you were here. Bob Russell is probably uh, my idol when it comes to preaching. I've been studying him for decades he is at the very, very top of the list in my book in terms of awesome preachers. I don't get nervous, and I just need to tell you, as I was sitting right where Tony is this week, I was getting ready to do the communion meditation, I'm getting a little nervous because I'm sharing the stage with Bob Russell. I know that's kind of silly, but that's just how I go with it in many ways. And after first service, one of our sweet, wonderful ladies came up to me, and here's what she said to me. She said, um, that Bob Russell's okay, but he's no Greg Taylor. And I was just like, please, please, please do not repeat that. She goes, I just told Bob Russell that. <laughs> I love her. She's awesome. She's wrong, but I love her. That's boldness. I don't care who believes it. I'm going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is saying here. Peter's saying, I don't care. I'm all in. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the answer. Number two, I want you to see that Peter affirms what Paul would later teach was of first importance, that Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. We've been hammering this for three straight weeks now. We did it on Easter, we did it on the 15th, and now we're doing it on the 29th. I want to be burned into your memory, into your mind. 1 Corinthians 15.3 where Paul says this is of first importance. This is the most important thing. Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. My friends, that's the gospel message. That's what makes Jesus different. That's why you should be a Christ follower. Because Jesus died on the cross for you, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. Peter's affirming that. Number three, see that Peter proclaims that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Last week, Bob Russell shared with us John 14.6. Many of you know that verse where Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I understand that's not politically correct. I understand that if you just closed your eyes right now, you could probably visualize someone in your world, in your life, that would hate that statement. They might call you a bigot for saying that. They might call you narrow-minded for believing that. 
They might say that you were intolerant for affirming that. Peter says it's the truth. Jesus said it's the truth. And we have a choice. We agree or we don't. We affirm or we deny. Peter proclaims Jesus is the only way. And then finally, number four, I want you to see that Peter and John's impact, it's amazing. Even though they were ordinary men without training and schooling, the religious leadership was astonished. And what you need to know is that religious leaders are rarely astonished. That was the case in the first century world, and it's the case in the 21st century world. I've been to a lot of conferences with people that have PhDs and D-mens, and there is nothing wrong with having a PhD. There's nothing wrong with having a D-men. Get an education. Kids, go to school, go to college, go to graduate school, all that stuff. But here's what I want you to understand. At least from my perspective, Many times, the more educated a person is, the, the less astonished they become. The less in, in awe they become. And that was definitely the case in the first century world. These people got together, they debated the Old Testament, they debated the law of Moses, they, they, they thought, what does this really mean? They talked about guys like Jesus, it was an intellectual exercise, and they went home. And Acts 4.13 says, they were astonished. Because they said, they haven't been to seminary. They don't have demons in PhDs. They're not published. They haven't written anything. And look at what they have done. Bottom line for you today, see this. Peter and John made the most of their second chance. And they changed their world for Jesus Christ. I don't know that there is a person in Scripture that is more discouraged and more devastated than the Apostle Peter was when we read about him at the end of the Gospels. See, Jesus had said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, it'll never, ever, ever, ever happen. And it happened, and the rooster crowed, and Jesus and Peter met eye to eye, face to face. And my guess at that moment in time, Peter thought something along the lines of, I'm a failure. I'm a disaster. I've given three years of my life to follow after him, and I can't even defend him to a teenager. I can't even defend him to a common person. And then he watched as they nailed him to the cross. I don't know that anyone in Scripture is lower than the Apostle Peter is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew or the end of the Gospel of John. But Peter got a second chance. And boy, did he make the most of his second chance. The first half of the book of Acts is the story of Peter and John and their boldness and their preaching and the way they changed their world. That's really the cool thing about being a Christian, about being a Christ follower, is that just like Peter, we've all messed up. We've all fallen short. I have. I have stories I could tell you about myself you wouldn't believe. You have some of those stories you could tell about yourself. But that's not what it's about. It's not about wallowing in defeat. It's not about wallowing in disappointment. It's about saying, God, here I am. Use me. God used Peter and John in the midst of their failure, and they changed the world. A week ago, one of my heroes of the faith, contemporary heroes of the faith, passed away. His name was Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was uh, in the, the Nixon administration in the 1970s. He, he left office in, in shame. He 
He went to prison for crimes that he committed. He was known as the hatchet man for the Nixon administration. And if you'd have been placing bets in 1973, could this man do anything of redeeming value for the faith? You wouldn't have found a single person that would have said, yes, he will. But when he died on April 21 of this year, Chuck Colson had changed his world through prison fellowship. More people have come to know Jesus Christ through prison ministry, the the prison ministry of prison fellowship, than any other prison ministry in the history of prison ministries. Do you realize that every day, 1,400 radio stations, many of them secular stations, ran his Breakpoint radio commentary? He's considered a genius in the area of worldview studies. This is a guy that was a political slime dog that went to prison for crimes committed, and he changed his world for Christ. The Apostle Paul killed Christians, persecuted Christ followers, and became the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Well, we've studied Peter's story. I've shared with you Chuck Colson's story and the Apostle Paul's story. Bottom line, what's your story? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And I just, I'm reminded of of the response of Peter and John when they were called back in and chastised and told to shut up and stop preaching and stop talking about the resurrection. They said, we can't. We've got to keep speaking. We've got to keep talking. And they changed their world. And so this morning, Father, as we contemplate these great stories, I'm reminded right now that what's really most important is my story and our stories. We're so blessed because of your grace. Is it a blessing we're going to keep to ourselves? Or are we going to be bold? Are we going to be proud? We're going to change our world. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. And that's our prayer for each and every one of you, is that, is that you have a story.